I'm Alan Thorpe. And I'm David Rogers, and together we host The Weather Pod. In each episode, we invite a leading expert to help investigate how public, private and academic sectors can work together to produce weather information of value to business and society. Timely, accurate and focused weather information and related services have enormous value across all areas of human activity. It can increase the efficiency and profitability of business, help save lives and improve safety on land, at sea and in the air, and predict the spread of life-threatening diseases. Now, as climate change increases the frequency and impact of extreme weather events, weather information is crucial to build social and economic resilience. In this episode of The Weather Pod, we're delighted to welcome Paul Davies as our guest to discuss the implications of impact-based forecasting for the future of weather forecasting and of the weather forecaster. Paul is the Chief Meteorologist at the UK's National Meteorological Service, the Met Office. He has many years of experience in meteorology and is now recognised nationally and internationally as an authority in the field of operational meteorology. Paul was a Chief Forecaster in 2003 before being appointed as the Chief Hydrometeorologist and Deputy Head of the UK's Flood Forecasting Centre in 2008. From 2010, he was the founder and inaugural chair of the UK's Natural Hazards Partnership, comprising partner agencies, government departments and the Cabinet Office. Paul has worked extensively in the international arena, including with the World Meteorological Organisation. Paul, welcome to the Weather Pod. Hi, Paul, and it's great to, to have you here. Yeah, it's nice to, to be with you guys. Um, so looking forward to the session. Thank you. Paul, you've written with some considerable passion about impact-based forecasts. So I, I wanted to start the conversation today with really a, a, a probing into what exactly do we mean by impact-based forecasts and how do they differ from what you might call traditional weather forecasts? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's about what the weather will do rather than what the weather will be. I think the essence of the impact-based forecasting. And I, from a personal perspective, it came about after the floods we had in the UK in 2007. I was a chief forecaster at the time. And I was issuing forecasts and warnings saying 90 millimetres of rain are going to fall in Gloucestershire. And I had one horrible moment when a civil contingency advisor came to me and said, well, I've got a ruler out. And I measured it. And what you're talking about is a big standing puddle of 90 millimetres deep. And I realised we have a problem. So we had a problem about how we translated information, in, in particular, in this particular case, the flooding we saw in Gloucestershire, in a way that it conveyed an impact, it conveyed an action. 90 millimetres of rain falling in that space of time in Gloucestershire was a huge amount of rain. And it had led to the devastating impact we saw in 2007 summer. So from that point, I said, right, we need to sort of try and fix this. We need to find a better way of communicating threshold-based at the time, warnings, advice to those people who can take action. And that came from that, came from the impact-based forecasting. So in a sense, it, it depends whether I receive an impact-based forecast or a traditional weather forecast. It depends on who I am. If I'm a member of the general public, for example, uh, watching um, the BBC weather forecast on the TV. I'm not going to get an impact-based forecast, am I? No, you're just going to get a traditional forecast, you know, blow-by-blow blow account what the weather's going to do for the next few days. Impact-based forecasting is a very different beast. It's, it's about what does it mean? What impact does it have on me as a person or my society? 
Okay. Um, so obviously you've, you've mentioned there um, coping with, with the impacts of weather and, and of course, particularly extreme weather. Um, and that <clears throat> must involve not just the public weather services like the Met Office, but also a range of other organisations. You've already mentioned uh, one or two there. And I just wondered at the organisational level, um, how do you see the roles and responsibilities of, of these various actors uh, that are involved? And in a sense, the the meteorological services provide um, something along the value chain. How how far do the, do the MET services go um, relative to the other actors? It's a good question. I mean, you know, we take the example of the flooding event in 2007. After Sir Michael Pitt's review, there was a recommendation that would bring hydrology and meteorology together. So bringing the Environment Agency and the Met Office together to deliver a better service, impact-based service, was the, was the kind of the, the breeding ground of that recommendation of Sir Michael Pitt, of which we had to meteorologists. So the, so the Met Office moved up slightly up of the value chain in that regard, in partnership with the Environment Agency for flooding. But then we realized we need to engage with the Cat2 community. This is in the UK community, so that's the civil protection that's local authorities, that's maybe water, energy, food supply companies and organizations in order to better gauge the impact because we may have the answers about the flood risk, but that doesn't tell us what the impact is going to be. We need to engage with others. And so that came from the Natural Hazards Partnership and how we built up other partners into better understanding that impact. So when, when you say engagement, could you just what, what does that actually mean? Does it mean a conversation on the phone or what, what, what does engagement mean? Right, there's two parts. Yeah, there's two parts of engagement. One part of the engagement is when we foresee or predict uh, an impact or weather event that's going to lead to impact. We have advisors in our country, in the UK, who actually engage local communities, engage Category 2 responder community, the police, the fire brigade, and ask them, if we're predicting this type of weather, what will be the impact? Then we collect that information, feed it back into the Met Office, by which then assess where we sit on the, what we call the matrix, where, where, what colour and what impact do we think this particular event is going to be. So from an operational perspective, we, we, we have an engagement, a, a process by which we get that impact information from others and feed it back into the decision-making process. But in peacetime, there's a lot of work about exercising. So in other words, going through particular scenarios and just seeing, well, look, what would we do in this particular scenario? And then through that, learn by that process by which we can improve our, our warning situation and warning processes. So I, I recall when when well, you started the whole process and then it was sort of brought to the World Meteorological Organization and the there was early on some sort of pushback from some smaller meteorological services that you know, we, we can't do this because it's it's a burden on us and, and it changes the nature of what the weather forecaster is expected to do. And I'm wondering today whether that that view that it was going to radically change the job is really true. Because as we work with many others in this domain, you know, you're looking at disaster managers and and others who are taking on some of the responsibility, is, is the forecaster's job changed really? I would say in terms of their day-to-day -day activity, largely not. I think there's still that role of predicting the weather. That's what I'm seeing. I think what has changed and is changing is better understanding what we can and cannot do. So in my country, 
you know, appreciation of there are some types of weather where it's just simply unpredictable. You know, a thunderstorm hit in London in three days' time, which town, which part of London is it going to hit? We just cannot predict that. And I think it's that understanding of what and what we can't do is really important impact-based forecasting that we didn't have in the past. It's the channels of communication, the channels of engagement that that brought to my profession. Do, do you see the role? I mean, I think, again, you, the Met Office kind of coined the idea of having an, a um, pu public sort of service advisors. Um, I've forgotten what you call them. But that advisory role is in a sort of a in-between the forecaster, the bench forecaster, and those who are trying to interpret and utilize this information. So there's a role that's kind of different. There's a different job than existed in and and exists in traditional meteorological services. Right. Yeah. The, yes. The advisors. Yeah. We call them civil contingency advisors now. And and they were kind of complementing the weather forecaster profession. They're an add-on. And that I think has really personally changed the way the weather forecaster looks at the weather. So it's that insight that comes in from a response community saying, well, look, we're not worried about 150 millimeters rainfall in Cumbria. We can cope with that. I know it sounds a lot of rain from a meteorological perspective for us in Cumbria. It's okay. And I do recall one particular event in Leeds where everybody was saying that everything's okay in the amount of rainfall and suddenly it turned. So we're now really interested in just 10 millimeters now because that's enough rainfall that'll tip us into a flood response, you know, a flood event in York. And, and so, it's having that insight that comes in and what we need to focus on rather than what the meteorologist wants to focus on. So, so where, do these, where, where do these advisors sit then? Are they, are they in the meteorological service or are they in civil contingencies or disaster management agencies? We have our own advisors. So they sit in the Met Office in, the, in, that, in that context. Um, so we embed, we have them scattered across the UK. So they're, so they're regionally based. Um, when we closed our civil civil weather centres, we replaced them with advisors, which David may recall what happened in the Met Office at that point. Um, and there was a lot of, I remember at the time, it was it was quite a tough transition for us because it felt like you were devaluing the role of the weather forecaster by closing centres down. But what we, what we realise now is that it's been a real benefit for us because rather than having weather forecasters centralised, we can do things, well, sorry, not having it centralized, having it, having advisors understanding, embedding themselves into customers' thinking and being a bit more free and agile has really brought fantastic benefit to, the, to my profession at least. So you're kind of, you're bringing the user, knowledge of the user into the service so that it becomes really much more relevant. So it sounds, it sounds like it's a tough job, this being an advisor, because <clears throat> you have to understand a lot about the response to to the to the weather yeah and i would say it's still a tough job being a weather forecaster too but you're right and i think i think it's complementary and I, i'll talk about it a bit later about the future role of the profession but i think it's a complementary activity that we all benefit from each other and it works so do you think in that role the, the advisor's role they're sort of bringing the realism uh, into the problem. I mean, I mean, someone's got to help people understand the uncertainty. We hear often uh, this forecast was useless because it didn't happen, and you say, "Well, it, it, we're lucky it didn't happen because you weren't very well prepared for it in the first place." But the advisor's role seems to be 
helping the user understand the inherent inherent uncertainty in the forecast or in the atmosphere itself and that this is a particularly important role when especially when decisions have to be made which are about safety of life and, and property and livelihoods and so on you're spot on david i think i think what if there was a word i was going to use about the role of the advisors and the benefit is the word trust so you know they've built that relationship in peacetime before the event even happened engaging with the communities that would be trust you know they would trust the advice because it's come from mm. from someone they know or a group of people they know and i think that has been a paradigm shift and that's largely thanks to the impact-based forecasting because it kind of in, enforced us to be more engaged to, in, to to build that greater trust with with the local communities that if we didn't have it we wouldn't be able to do so <clears throat> if i wanted to be an advisor I wanted a career as one of these advisors. You know, if I want to be a meteorologist, I know I have to get a degree in physics and meteorology and uh, get a job in, in the Met services, etc., in the private sector. But how, how do I get the skills and expertise to be to be an advisor? Right. I mean, some, there's, a, there's a few advisors who are not meteorologists, not trained meteorologists. So, And we've, we've learned that actually don't have to be a fully trained meteorologist to be a good advisor. It's about the soft skills of that profession. It's about engagement. It's about willing to listen and, and willing to, to take time to build a, a friendship, a network. Um, you don't have to be a meteorologist to do that. Um, and, and so to, to your point, I think you probably need both camps. You need the meteorologist, right, to get the forecast right. But that goes along with the advisors who are out there in shaping up that forecast. So it gives us the right impact and the right action. So to your point, Alan, you want to become an advisor. Um, I, I would suggest, therefore, that, yeah, meteorology is a good backdrop there. But one of your key, the key skills that we need to, to engage is how do you build a partnership? How do you work with others? And how do you, the soft skills, which I call hard, actually, um, it's those skills that we need going forward. Do you think that they're better embedded in with the users or sitting in in the office in the Met office? Um, yeah, the advisors are in, often you know can be embedded with the customer. I mean, I do remember one or two have retired recently, and the outcry or say, "Oh my goodness, we can't! What 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 do we do now?" You know, Malcolm's now left Wales. I mean, who do we go to? There was almost almost a panic. Um, and so, yeah, and he did that by actually working really in their premises and they got to know him. They didn't see him from the Met office, they see him as one of them. And I think it's that bit which takes time, takes a lot of energy to build that partnership up. But my goodness, is it valuable? And the other point I have is succession, right? You know, that, that sustainability of advisors. You know, you can't rely on individuals all the time. We need to share that burden. We need to grow that, that cohort if we're going to keep that relationship. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. I'd like us to move on to, to look a little bit about um, probability-based forecasting. Obviously, one of the major advances in numerical weather prediction has been the development of ensemble predictions uh, that provide a, a, a sort of probabilistic estimate of what might happen. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of curious, how in practice does... Does a forecaster make use of such information to create impact-based forecasts? Um, 
and in a sense are they are they reliable enough those ensemble predictions um to make them part of an early warning system so can you talk a little bit about that aspect yeah so um to, to answer your question are they reliable enough the ensembles largely they are if it's used correctly um you know it, it the benefit of the ensembles is it gives you different types of scenarios you know, it presents, it presents pathways to an impact. And what we have learned is that it's not always about probabilities of certain threshold being breached. There's a lot more than ensembles can give you. And so through that, you know, like Ted Shepard and the storylines and the, and, and the concept mapping about how you then use the ensembles to identify a particular severe weather event in the context of a customer. And then look at the various different types of, you know, scenarios. But I guess, I guess we, we, David touched on it earlier about, and you did as well, about communication. It seems one of the, the difficulties of, of ensembles and probabilistic forecasts is how do we communicate that? And how, how do decision makers actually act on, on those probabilities? I mean, don't, don't they want some certainty? Is it going to be a severe event or is it not? So how do we cope with that? Yeah, I mean, I remember when we set up an extreme rainfall alert service back in the days in 2009, we gave the communities the actual probabilities of an extreme event. And the probabilities are woefully small, you know, you're talking about 3 5%. But actually, that is a significant number in, in terms of relations. Um, and so, in some senses, that's where spawned the colours, right? The colours was a vehicle by which we could then uh, represent both the likelihood, the probability, and the impact. And people really appreciate that. So, in other words, when we go for a red warning, it conveys, I mean, my goodness, when we go for red warning, we have to inform um, the press office and other media outlets before we issue it because we know the response of a red warning is significant. It often makes the number one headline news on the BBC and other, other news channels. Um, so in, in terms of conveying that probability and likelihood and with the impact using colours as a vehicle, it kind of addresses some of that. Well, one thing we've also learned as well is that actually painting a narrative, a story, of a 30% chance things could go very different to what, we've, what we're saying, the reasonable worst-case scenario, which the environment agency in us has actually been using. That's the fantastic vehicle by which you can describe the various scenarios and what could go wrong in terms of a forecast. Um, and the BBC and ITV and other news channels are starting to use that a lot. We in the Met Office have been using that as a vehicle as well in our comms and our messaging. Um, so I think... I think people are slowly getting it. I mean, people use probabilities for horses, right? You know, there's lots of betting. People don't question that. They understand that level of, you know, probability uncertainty. But I think in terms of the ensembles and the role of the forecaster, more particularly the user community and how we engage with it, I think there's a different channel, different way we can communicate than the traditional probability and threshold-based. I, I mean, to pick up on it, it's, it's like I often when I'm talking to people about impact-based forecasting, I say you know, there's a 15% chance of 100 millimeters of rainfall, particularly in you know, South Asia. And what would you do? You know, nothing. Um, there's a 15% chance your family will die tomorrow. Um, you get a completely different response, and it kind of recognizes that it really is the human dimensions, the psychology of the information and when you craft that message you do have to you have to make it clear that this isn't the likely outcome 
But if you really care about what it is that's threatened, you are going to take some action, some kind of preventative action. And it only happens when something that you cherish is really threatened. It's not the flood, it's not the amount of rainfall. But if you are going to be impacted, even a very low probability of an event is going to be way over in the high impact column of, uh, of the, the matrix of um, of this. And, and I think that low likelihood, high impact is something that really gets people's attention, but it has to be crafted in, in a way. And of course, it can't be threatening. It can't be just we're going to say that you're going to have this horrendous thing happen and it, and it uh, it has to be tempered but, properly, but it really needs to get... People have to really understand what are they dealing with. I mean, they cross but, the road with that degree of uncertainty at times. They need but don't to be they, aware. David, don't they need to, to know also what action they should take? I mean, it, it's all very well to, to feel frightened about what's going to happen, but what should I do if there's a 15% chance? This is the, the <laughs> fundamental problem. You have to have anticipatory action. And I think we can come to that discussion with Paul because that's a lot of the work that is coupled to particular sectors like the Red Cross, right? The work that you did with the Red Cross, Paul, that you have you are able to put resources, you know, pre-position resources so that the impact of a particular event on a community is minimized. And I think we're constantly all looking for that there's no there is i mean there's a point in the warning but there's no point in a warning really if you can't take action and it has to be action that you expect a community to be able to take it can't be unrealistic responses I mean, please evacuate well i can't leave my home because you know it'll be robbed if if nothing happens and that's what happens right people don't do anything because of the other uh, effects and and we have to build all of that into the into the system so, you know, can I pose a, a possible, possible way forward using the ensembles? So rather than using ensembles to predict what the weather is going to be, use the ensembles to suggest action. So the particular scenarios where we may wish to, pre to present what you could do to protect your family and your livelihoods. And that could be rated as a probability. So notice you're taking it one step further down that value chain. And I'm really keen with the ensembles. We tend to think of the ensembles from a meteorological perspective, but I think there's so much more we can do with ensembles that we're not currently doing. And I see that as the... F I'm, I'm going to the crystal ball question here, but I do think there's more we can do than we're not doing. The other thing I've learned as well from my colleagues in the UNDP and DRR and Japan, etc., the evidence is that people take action, not necessarily from one piece of information, but collective pieces of information. What's your neighbours doing? What your family's doing? What the news is saying? It's, three, it's about seven times the channels before you take action. And the other one, graphical. So in other words, words don't often convey the action you wish to take, but graphics does. And I like your point there, David, when you talked about the hill, the high-impact, low-likelihood events, the unprecedented. We've never seen this before. How do you convey that to someone who hasn't experienced that type of event, which you've seen plenty of on this planet this year? Maybe graphics. Hmm. where the career have presented that sort of narrative is maybe something we should consider and then wrap but, it up into the ensembles. Maybe that's the future the, bit there. The key point you're making there, Paul, though, is that the graphics would be about the different actions you need to take rather than necessarily the meteorological variability across the ensemble. Spot on, spot on. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And the environment <coughs> has done a really good job on that. They're starting to sort of, you see some of the advice is around the action you could take 
and not being too nanny state as well. That's the other key piece. There's nothing worse than telling people what you sh should do. I think a lot of it's about creating an environment. These are the options you can take to protect yourself. That's maybe something we could take forward to. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. Let's talk a bit about the role of um, the private sector. We've really been talking about public sector responsibilities and public tasks. But um, what do you see as a role of perhaps the private sector and even academic sectors um, in this, um, in creating and using impact-based forecasting? And I would add also in understanding um, whether people actually take action and what kind of actions are taken because there's a, there's a, there's a kind of absence of, of data in terms of knowing what really happened to after the warnings were issued. But I'm curious what your views on the role of uh, private, the private sector in particular in this uh, whole business. Oh, they're critical, absolutely critical. Um, you know, an illustration of that, and Alan's probably aware of this, in, sorry to be so parochial, but in the UK we had a rail crash in, in Scotland in 2020. And it was a real wake-up call for the rail industry here in my country. Um, and out of that came a, a, a review that was conducted by myself and Dame Julius Lingo. And one of the recommendations was in an academy. And it's something which I put forward as a strong recommendation. And the reason why is I felt like to understand how better to, to protect those using the rail, then we need the, part, the actors to work in together in one area, which is neutrally based. So in other words, I went for Newcastle University, so an academic institution where they have digital twins capability already embedded in there. And then bringing the rail industry with us, so the engineers, the operators in one space, but also MetDesk, who is a weather provider, private weather provider with the Met Office. Um, we, we brought academia, we brought other private companies into that space. And in that academy, which we had for the first time this year, the, the, the outcome of it wasn't about the weather or about, you know, the, the kind of the, what do you do in, in response to bad weather from rail industry. It was about making better decisions, making effective, better decisions, because we were all facing that issue. And that brought us together. And I'll come back to transdisciplinary in a minute. But that's the key role there I see. Private, mm. academia, and also um, the traditional institutions has to be the way forward. And that's just one example of that. But the other one I want to pick, sorry. Uh, just to pick up on that, Paul, um, the, there's also the, the the weather service provider sector within the private sector. So you, you mentioned MetDesk as an example, but there are many others, as we know. Um, and I, I, I would like to hear what you think about how do they fit into this? Because, of course, in a sense, they are providing weather forecasts themselves Uh alongside what you've described as the activities of the public weather services and the advisor network. How, how do you see that them playing a role? And how is it different to what they're doing today? So in this example, the weather provider, the private weather provider, play a critical role of serving the needs of the rail industry. The resources and the people that are required to do that is, is something which we haven't got in the Met Office at the moment. If we did that for all our sectors, we just don't have that resource. Nor do we have that attention that's needed to support the rail industry. It's a full-time job. And so having a private to, to help us with that is fantastic. The role of the Met Office is to support the rail industry and the, 
private in terms of they get the best information possible to make the right call. Now, what's interesting recently with the rail industry is that when there's bad weather, when you deal with an amber red warning, the role of the private and the rail industry and government becomes more, even more critical because the messaging, we talk about action here. So what message do we put in the warnings? If we say, for example, do not travel on the rail because of some heat, the rail industry will probably say, hang on a minute, people have to come into London because we've got to have people in the hospitals. You know, you've got to have people doing the normal job. That message needs to be tuned to what we're saying and what we probably want the public to do. So now you bring in a partnership that involves the private, the government, rail industry in this case, and others in order to make effective actions, the right action. I think that's what we're aiming towards. It's coming less about the weather forecasts, more about what you do when things go wrong and how do we communicate to people so they can stay safe and dry. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. Okay, I'd like to just um, move us on a little bit. A lot of the emphasis of the conversation so far has been about uh, if you like extraordinary or extreme weather um, events like like flooding like you know in the UK and Europe greater than 40 degree Celsius temperatures um, and the growing influence of climate change of course but we know that weather information is vital if you like in ordinary weather situations because it for businesses it can enable them to to improve the way that they provide uh, whatever they provide, whether it's in the retail sector or, um, you know, the, f- the food provision sector, etc. So, in a sense, I'm interested to know um, if you th- if you think the impact-based forecasting concept also applies to those ordinary weather situations that would affect businesses um, and that would, if they had better information, would help them do their job better. And the answer is yes, of course. <laughs> um, it, it's a natural extension, and perhaps to some degree we're already doing it, but I don't realise in it. I mean, there's many services that I know Met Services are providing where you, you, you make the most of the weather for a particular operation. So, like for example, more moving oil rigs and that kind of stuff. So there's so there's plenty of examples where it's not just about managing extremes, which in itself is really important, of course, but it's also making the best use of the weather conditions that you have. Um, you know, it's the stay, it's the staying safe and thrive. It's the thriving piece, and and how do you then extract that for the benefit of your own particular business? Absolutely, and there's a wealth of opportunity in that space. I think is is there almost too much opportunity in the sense that weather impacts so many aspects of society, so many businesses, that it it almost seems like a huge mountain to climb to be able to understand the impacts um, of of weather events uh, on them so that we can provide impact-based forecasts. And again, the question is, who is we in that case? Because of that huge range of, of possible uses and users of the weather information. Right. I mean, I, I personally think there's that, that personalization piece, right? So it does, it can be, there's a great article once in the, in, in the health magazine about Dr. You, you know, people often try and diagnose their own particular health conditions by Googling it. Um, and, and there is an opportunity there by framing that and providing a service that you can personalize the forecast for, for you and your vulnerability and exposure profile would be a way forward. And we also talk about the private, you know, the, the private industry to support that demand out there for more tailored services. 
I think you know if we had all if we if we all work together in a partnership in a genuine way, I think we're, at least we're on the journey towards that ambition that people are really taking the fantastic capability we have from a weather and climate community to better impact and better better decisions, right? Yeah, I mean you, you mentioned rightly tailored services there, and um, that that's certainly a part of this. David and I are, have been talking in other episodes of the weather pod about um situations where the weather is just one in one factor amongst many that need to be taken into account in, in a business and then you get into the position where you need to bring different data sets together you need to bring in machine learning uh to be able to find uh, in a sense the signal from the noise but there it's a case of bringing not just meteorological data but lots of other data and uh, we've tended to use the phrase an integrated service is needed then because it's not you know in, in a sense the weather information in a lot of situations where there's ordinary weather is a factor but it might not be anywhere near the major factor so again is this is this something i mean i think we feel that this is a great opportunity to to make more of weather information i'm just interested in your opinion on that I think you. I think you spot on. I think both you and David are spot on. Um, you know, in, in in terms of, you know, the the weather, you've got systemic risks. You've got that compound risk, right? That comes into that equation too. So it's, and weather may not just weather just may be the vehicle by which an event involves or a particular decision you want to make involves. And I wonder whether there is more in that space than we currently looking into and providing um and i mean i asked a question to you two you know you've come up with the term integrated services which i love actually have you thought much yourself how do you actually implement that how do we take that concept forward well david david may have a different view to me but i i think this is a great opportunity for private sector companies to to develop the software tools that bring different data sets together to enable a, a business to have the right kind of information for them, there need there needs to be some work done by an intermediary that that brings all these data sets together and and utilizes things like artificial intelligence. There seems to be a real potential industry that could be created um, to make the most of of weather effectively. Um, but David, I, I guess you might might have a view on this. Yeah, I mean, there's. I mean, right now there's there's a lot of work that's being supported in the World Bank, um, which is with their data lab. So there's you know, trying to access um, large data sets from from different places and working with the owners of those those data sets. So if we bring it back to the, you know, the uh, using weather information, then it's also there's a lot of information, behavioural information. There's a lot of information that's economic information. I mean, all of these layers are enable new questions to be asked, and also to really understand how the different activities interact with each other. Right? That we're, we we uh, we you know, we talk about mul We haven't mentioned this today, but we talk about multiple hazards. We talk about, but it's to do with how the interconnectedness of all of the actions that happen in a society so we can put a forecast out f that might um might be for a flood somewhere and you, and it's it's nowhere near let's say um a power plant or something 
but it actually cuts off the workers from getting to the power plant. Yeah, so the interconnectedness of all of these different uh, activities, and you can explore that when you have these really what are phenomenal data sets. And I think you know, we're, uh, your comment, Alan, is right, is right that there are new things will come out of exploring this and exploiting this kind of information. And there are huge opportunities. There are huge business opportunities to really increase the efficiency and effectiveness of day-to-day -day actions and decisions. And I think, you know, we're going, we're going into this world um, where if we have a volatile, renewable-driven energy sector, we have to be really smart about the production and use of that, 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 that uh, power supply. And so there's an example of everything being scaled to very, very high-resolution forecasts. You I mean you need a forecast of cloud cover. We've discussed this in another episode on, in, uh, about Singapore and cloud cover and solar radiation. And that, that kind of um, l level of detail is something... We don't quite have that in general, right? It's not part of our normal forecasting practices, but we're definitely heading in that direction that it will become a incredibly dynamic process and of course it it's not going to be done by your you know the services like the met office which are responsible for a set of public tasks it's really very much about uh, goes well beyond that and it's a whole industry that i think is growing um it's, it exists now and it's growing very very quickly and it involves the new actors the big actors and players like the googles and so forth who are very good at uh data aggregation and ana analytics that are really important in these decisions. That kind of brings us to a final question. In a way, we've been talking about it all the way through, which is about the future. You know, what do you think, Paul, from um, the future for impact-based forecasting and in the context of a changing climate, more extreme weather, uh, changes in the economy? I mean, what, what, what's, what's it, what do you think is going to happen with uh, these kinds of integrated services. Just building what you just said there, David, with respect to um, aggregation and, and new, new integrated services. One thing I wonder where the future would be is around regula regulation, quality assurance piece. I've had so many requests of, can I trust this data? Is it good enough? And I wonder whether that aspect of the future consultant weather forecaster, maybe we don't use the word weather forecaster in the future. I'm trying to turn meteorologist, I want to call it something else. But it's that paradigm shift about not having to produce the forecast anymore, but it's providing that advice and quality assurance piece. I think the other thing which I think will be different going forward is that we are starting to see things we've never seen before. We call it the unprecedented. And I go back onto the extremes, but it's that climate to weather piece. I think that's quite critical too. And so one thing I'm very keen to do is real-time attribution, understanding the contextualization of, a, of an impact too. So in other words, you've got impact-based, but it's wrapping it around the changing climate and the changing vulnerability as well. I think that's a critical element going forward. And I do think about the action too as well. And I do think that what, what's, the, what's the phrase? Um, you can't manage what you can't measure. Mm. And you picked that up earlier, David, where we say we've produced this weather impact services, but where's the evidence that it's done good? Where's the evidence of performance? And I've been recently at the UN, DRR, and DP offices in Bonn, Germany, 
were leading the task force, international task force, about cost loss, about how then we record and catalogue the extremes and then relate that to the impact and loss communities, the DRR communities. And you're right to say there is a bit of a tension there. But if we in our global community can define a standard by which we can engage, like we did with impact base, and then we can relate that to cost loss with insurance from insurance companies and Swiss from UNRI, then we're in a fighting chance of actually starting to measure and then we can manage that way mm-hmm. forward for impact-based services. So I think it's more heading towards that real customer interface now, understanding benefit, understanding impact in a way that we haven't really tackled yet. I think the other thing as well is the climate aspect and the compounds and cascading the concurrent co- 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 risks that comes with that. And I've seen more evidence that that is more pertinent and more amplified, more acute than it's ever been. Um, you only have to look around the planet, you know, South Africa, Germany floods, New York floods, the heat. You know, these are bubbling up now. These are real. Climate's happening mm-hmm. now. So how do we deal with that? Do we need a ty- new type of profession, new type of engagement, new type of service? I think we're at that tipping point right now as much as the climate is reaching the tipping point. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. I guess I'd, I'd like to chip in with just, I know we said that was a final question, but um, I'm just a bit worried that, in a sense, the developing world may get left behind in all of this. I mean, a lot of what we've talked about is is quite focused on really the the well-developed meteorological services that can provide information, can provide the advisor network that you've talked about, Paul, etc. I'm just trying to think about a developing country that is quite uh, tight for resources, has very few people working in this area. And they they are often suffering, of course, some of the, the worst extremes of, of the weather. Um, I don't know, how, how can we how can we avoid them losing out in this development? That's a good question. I mean, as you know, within our community, we have a, a network that we work together in that. And from a, from a meteorological perspective, we have this cascading mechanisms where we can feed and support each other. I would also advocate that we can learn a lot from developing countries as well. There's a two-way mechanism there. And I, I cite that because when we saw these sub-hourly extreme fall rainfall events, what in effect you get is an inland tsunami. You know, it just this the amount of rainfall that's cascading through villages, picking up cars. It looks like a tsunami, but it's coming from the land, not from the sea. So I spent a bit of time at East Timor and, and Indonesia this year about asking them, how do you deal with that? How do you communicate to your local communities and managing these 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 type of tsunami events? And I've learned so much from that about risk perception, about how you engage, how you bring communities in do that what messaging do they need to take action and i think there's a two-way process here and i wonder whether there's always that feeling developed countries know the answers we don't and developing countries you right. rightly say are often the ones who are suffering from climate but they've been adapting they're trying to understand how to protect their property and their populations we can learn from them too so i think this is a great opportunity where we can bridge a genuine global community about understanding what we can do to protect our own citizens that's the future and I think one one also important aspect of the developing world is that more and more are getting access to the tools that have been developed by the global centers, so the, the major production centers, which are few. So it's not as if the every developed country's got 
huge capabilities of its own, but they have access to those that are the producers, major producers. And I think increasingly that's being recognized in in developing countries and certainly the ones that I work with, they have access to the best information. And, and a, a key thing for me is, does everybody have access to the, the right um, knowledge and processes of how it fits together? So as we were talking through this um, recording, we also have to be mindful that there are good practices, there are ways of doing things, and there are ways that aren't very good, that don't lead necessarily to the best outcomes. It's not about huge amounts of resources to be spent. It is more about how you work together. For example, how do you get, do you, how do you get a disaster management uh, center to work with a meteorological community, be it the public provider or be it private companies? How can they do that? And, and are they able to do that? How, can they get over their, their sort of natural impediments of the bureaucracies of government to do that? Because that's one of, to me, that's one of the biggest challenges. It's not the the science, the technology, the know-how. It is more about the inability to change the way you practice your business, right? So the way the government functions. I mean, there are places where you can't actually hire the right people because there's no cadre for that skill in that organization, even though they're responsible for that particular type of forecasting activity i mean maybe it's hydrology they but they don't have then there's no there's no place for the hydrologist in the organization and they haven't managed to solve that or they haven't managed to say you know we need to detach three meteorologists to disaster management and let them work there because they then become the advisors i mean those are the problems they're not those are not un insurmountable but it's the good practices that need to be shared as much as anything and I think that's something that's not done as well as it could be. It's still a you know, work in progress. Paul, I think that concludes today's uh, discussion. I just want to say thank you so much for taking time out to, to join us today. I think it's been a, a really illuminating uh, discussion. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I, I think we could talk forever about <laughs> baseball casting in the future. So it's been great. And thanks for joining us. And thank you both as well. I really enjoyed that too. Thank you. Well, that concludes this episode of The Weather Pod. We hope you've enjoyed it. Alan and I will be back next month. And in the meantime, please give us your feedback via email to support at gweforum.org.